an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And first, I hope you and yours, including, of course, all the animals in your families, came through Hurricane Ian safe and sound. Well, my thoughts and sympathies go out to the many who did not fare well. The scope of Ian's devastation is dramatic and deeply upsetting. Not surprisingly, we're aiming to carry on here at WMNF, continue to offer our wide array of programming, including presenting another edition of Talking Animals. I'll tell you about that in a sec, but I just want to offer my thanks to my intrepid uh, WNF colleagues who stayed here during the uh, days of Ian. Some actually lived here during those days just to make sure that we kept broadcasting, kept updating on Ian and other news and uh, mixing in some music as well. And so they uh, put in some long, hard days and my hat's off to them. So meanwhile, today on Talking Animals, my guest will be Dr. Eric Eisenman, founder of International Veterinary Outreach, or IVO. Eisenman launched IVO, which provides veterinary services and training to rural areas and countries sorely lacking both, while in vet school at UC Davis. That was more than a decade ago during which IVO has grown and changed, becoming a seasoned operation with assorted resources and a high-octane board of directors. Very early on in this evolution, IVO became a 501c3 charitable nonprofit corporation and gradually expanded its reach of improving animal welfare globally by bringing veterinary care and training to rural communities. In some instances, this involves areas where there otherwise may not have been a single veterinarian. For example, this month, October, IVO is launching a new dog health and veterinary training program in Tanzania. A particular focus of this new program is the city of Dodoma, where there's not a small animal veterinary clinic to be found, so animal suffering can be rampant. We'll learn more about Dodoma and the IVO program there and IVO generally when I speak with Dr. Eisenman in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A programming note, as you may know, WNS Fall Fund Drive begins tomorrow, October 6th. A tricky time, posing extra challenges for fundraising for WMNF. And as always, I carry a responsibility for raising a certain amount of money. That is the Talking Animals fundraising goal as part of WNF's overall fundraising goal for the Fall Fund Drive. And these campaigns are crucial for WNF's ongoing existence. Fund drives are responsible for 70% of WNF's operating budget. So I'm asking for your support today. If you've ever found Talking Animals educational, illuminating, entertaining, or otherwise helpful in one way or another, please donate any amount you can, again, today ideally, by hitting our tip jar, which you can easily access by visiting WMNF.org, finding the Talking Animals page in the broadcast schedule, then clicking on our tip jar at the top right-hand side of the page. Please indicate your donation is in support of Talking Animals. And as always, we have some exclusive thank you gifts for pledges at various levels. These will include some fantastic tickets, which I can't quite mention today because I need to completely confirm the tickets first, but once I know for sure, I'll be uh, posting about those tickets on social media. Meanwhile, of course, I still have some great thank you gifts for uh, animal people, including a terrific uh, nutty fun uh, whimsical apron for cat lovers and a stainless steel tumbler coffee mug emblazoned with canines and caffeine make me happy surrounding an illustration of a dog wearing sunglasses. This mug or tumbler is very cool. 
And there are more thank you gifts to be had, of course. You can email me at dj at WNF right now with questions about the gifts, pledge prices, and so on, and I'll reply right after the show. Later in today's program, I'll talk with Gregory Malik-Jones, a certified pet food nutrition specialist who works at Holistic for Pets in Bradenton. Malik-Jones, who's also a vet tech, will discuss the anesthesia-free teeth cleaning event that Bradenton Store is hosting this Saturday, October 8th, and then again next month on November 12th. And we'll hear about other aspects of the Bradenton Store. All that is a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk veterinarians helping animals and people in rural areas across international borders with Dr. Eric Eisenman. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Eric Eisenman on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Eisenman. Good morning, Duncan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Thanks for having me. So in a moment, I want to delve into the history of IVO and beyond, of course, bringing us up to the present. But first, I'd like to explore a little bit of your own history. I'd probably be hard-pressed, actually, to count the number of people I've interviewed uh, in the show over the years who in their own formative years thought they for sure wanted to become a veterinarian, but for one reason or another ended up somewhere else in animal welfare or rescue, somewhere still in the animal realm, but not, not as a veterinarian. And you obviously did become a veterinarian. When did that become an ambition for you? I want to say the realization uh, hit me probably towards my end of college. And, you know, it's funny, a lot of my classmates will say they knew they wanted to be a veterinarian when they're about eight years old or so. I didn't I didn't really figure it out until until the, the end of my undergraduate days. Wow, that is super unusual. <laughs> um, yeah. So what prompted that? What happened towards the end of college where you thought, hey, I hadn't really entertained this thought for you know, any time, really, much less for years and years like a lot of my future colleagues. But I think I want to become a veterinarian. What happened? Walk me through that sort of revelation. Sure. Well, just like every college kid, I, I was going through a, a time of growth, uh, you know, both uh, mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And, and uh, I was studying biology mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, biology is the study of life. And I was interested in how I could apply uh, the, my, my learnings. And um, I was considering medicine, human medicine. Yeah. Uh, but probably what made the biggest impact on me is, is actually my, uh, my uncle, uh, he, he's a veterinarian. He's actually a retired veterinarian based in Tampa Bay. Oh, yeah. Named Dr. Dr. Jim Lutz. Um, and he had his own private practice in Largo for a couple decades. And, um, and he actually let me tag along one summer and, and work with him in, in, in uh, Largo. And, and, and that really exposed me initially to veterinary medicine. Wow, that's really interesting. So I gather that because you were studying biology, you were kind of thinking, even if you weren't sure what you are going to do in, uh, throughout the college years, that it was probably heading to science, whether that was briefly like med school or some other kind of scientific thing, given that that's kind of what your focus of your major and studies were. You just weren't sure where it was going to lead you directly. Yeah, that's exactly correct. I, I was um, very interested in, in medicine, and, and I, I've always been a huge animal lover, and so it, it doing that visit that summer in, in Tampa Bay really did solidify my interest in, in serving animals, and, uh, and so that's where I made my shift to uh, vet med. 
Wow. So Tampa Bay can sort of uh, claim some bragging rights for uh, launching this direction, which, of course, ultimately launched the IVO, I guess. So that's that's good. We'll be we'll be bragging shortly. You touched on something just in passing that I uh, want to find out a little bit more about just because otherwise some of the pieces uh, I'm still trying to put together here. So were you like a uh, kind of an animal lover f- like throughout your childhood and beyond? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, when I was when I was a kid, my, my parents, uh, we always had pets, uh, both dogs and cats. And and um, but I was I was pretty obsessed with with cats uh, at an early age, especially around the age of eight is when I I had kept bothering my parents for uh, 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 adopting, allowing me to adopt a kitten. And so on my eighth birthday, they took me to the local humane society and they allowed me to pick out a cat uh, or kitten. And I, I was brought him home. I named him whiskers <laughs> just like a you know an eight-year-old kid would do sure and um but but you know he, he became my best friend we we uh we were we were more or less inseparable especially at night when it was when it was chilly at, and uh you know living in the state of oregon mm. so um he, he he became my partner in crime so that's where you grew up then is oregon that's correct and then where did you end up going to college well i ended up going to um attend the University of Oregon for my undergraduate studies, which is where I majored in biology. And then I uh, moved to California and uh, specifically the city of San Francisco. And that's where I really started working more in the veterinary field or I attended veterinary school um, at UC Davis, University of California, Davis. Yeah. So, so it sounds like there was like a period um that even went beyond just your experience with Dr. Lutz, whatever, where you were still kind of looking around and, and kind of sounds like formalizing what seemed to then become like, hey, my path is actually going to vet school. But So what else was happening in San Francisco that helped cement that position? Yeah, so I I picked up all my belongings and, and something told me to move to San Francisco when I was in my early 20s. And, and so that's what I did. And and when I arrived in San Francisco, I started looking for some work. And uh, one of the first places that I applied was the San Francisco SPCA. Mm. And uh, so I worked. I started working um, more as a receptionist at the veterinary hospital, really getting to understand a very different community of people that, you know, compared to what I was used to, <clears throat> um, uh, specifically, you know, more of a Latino American uh, community in the Mission District of San Francisco. And so working with them and, and, and helping ensure that their pets would receive care. Um, after I did that for about six months, I, I actually transferred within the same organization and started working in their shelter. Mm. So the SPCA here in San Francisco has a pretty large shelter. Um, it's actually been a very forward-thinking animal shelter uh, relative to many other organizations. I think a lot of that comes from great support from the community, uh, more resources available. And, um, but that was, that was really, uh, where I started to involve myself much more in the field of animal welfare, uh, caring for animals that don't have, uh, the, um, you know, uh, an owner, um, that, that aren't as lucky as many of our other pets that, that we take great care of here in our home. So, um, that's where I, I fell in love working with animals that are in greater need, and and the and and so that was the beginning of my chapter in animal welfare. And you know, it's interesting. I've talked to a good number of folks over the years who, through one factor or another, have ended up kind of in that 
sort of receptionist thing that you've talked about or sort of uh, the intake desk or, you know, it's called different things. It essentially often does the same kind of thing who were profoundly affected by that experience and, and did steer them in some specific direction as it sounds like it did you. Yeah, most definitely. I think, you know, it. one of the beauties of that is, is you know, if you're, if you're working um, at a receptionist level job and in a veterinary hospital, uh, it really allows you to to understand, you know, it's, it's not an easy job. The, the people that do that work, um, I think, are usually underpaid. And, and uh, you know, what, what they put into it, you know, they put their heart and soul into it. They care a lot about the, the experience for the client and, and, um, and the, the care for the animal. And so we can't forget the receptionists. They do, they do so much great work for us uh, in the veterinary space. Yeah. And again, just what you get exposed to and what you learn, what you can't help but learn, even if there's obviously very tough days uh, along the way. But it's really seemed to help shape a lot of people in terms of what they wanted to do. And it sounds like that that was the case. So it sounds like really between your experience with Dr. Lutz out here and then your stint at the uh, San Francisco SPCA, it sounds like by that time you were fairly clear, like, hey, I think this means I want to become a veterinarian. Most definitely, yeah. I, I, uh, that's when I started applying to veterinary school. You know, I, I think folks, listeners on this on this radio, probably have heard that it can be quite competitive to uh, attend veterinary school, and and uh, so I, I did apply I, my first round when I was working at the SPCA, and and I was not accepted by any of the schools that I applied to, and and so you know I think some people might see the the, the downside of that, whereas to me, I had to, I looked more positively and realized, well, this would be a great opportunity for for me to continue to build my my experience and and um, and look look beyond um, United States and, and maybe start volunteering for some some organizations abroad. And so that's exactly what I did. I started setting up um, opportunities to work with um, essentially volunteer with different animal welfare organizations throughout Latin America and. Spent eight months. Um, oops, sorry. I spent about eight months um, uh, in Chile and Bolivia and Nicaragua and Guatemala, volunteering with, volunteering with lots of different animal welfare organizations, and and you know spending that much time abroad. And you know these are lower to middle income countries. Uh, you you see a very different side of of how animals are treated in other parts of the world, and and that's really where I started gaining more interest in in doing. Uh, more international veterinary work to improve animal welfare. Yeah, that's really interesting because, I mean, obviously I think we start to see how uh, the story we'll get into momentarily about international veterinary outreach kind of came together. But w- but what, like you said, a lot of people, if they didn't get accepted in their first round of applying to vet school, would say, well, I guess this isn't for me. What prompted you to say, well, I'll come back to that. I'm not going to keep working and volunteering with animals. How did it end up being like an international element? Did you just have a certain amount of wanderlust anyway? And you thought, well, I like doing this at San Francisco. I would like to do some traveling or I've done some traveling maybe. So maybe I'll just take this to some other countries and accomplish a few things that I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah. I, I had already uh, traveled extensively throughout Latin America right after my undergraduate degree. And that was that initial trip. I, I spent about seven months traveling through Latin America. I was in Colombia and Ecuador, Venezuela, Argentina, and Brazil. And that was more for fun. That was exploration as a, as a young adult. 
uh, learning language, uh, learning culture, et cetera. And after I applied to veterinary school the first time and I was living in San Francisco, I, I saw this as a moment to seize in that I could, I could take the skills that I'd been learning uh, at the veterinary hospital and animal shelter and I could bring those skills and, and offer them to organizations that could benefit uh, populations of animals that could benefit from the new skills that I had developed. And so it was kind of a pairing of, of one, just um, wanting to travel and continue to, uh, to learn and practice Spanish, uh, and two, to, um, to build more experience. And, and really it was, the, you know, these travels, working with lots of different animal welfare organizations in these different uh, Latin American countries really did allow me to become a competitive candidate for veterinary school. So when I came back to the U.S. after that uh, second large trip in Latin America, I reapplied to veterinary school, and they, they actually let me in this the second time. Well, not only that, but, um, I mean, I'm sure probably people listening know this, some may not, but UC Davis is a top-tier vet school, so they not only let you in, you got into, like, a great one. Yeah, yeah, I was I was pretty lucky. <laughs> well, sounds like what well, yeah, what you really did just because it was driven by actual passion rather than something as more strategic that some people might do. I mean, you just had really fortified probably what your application looked like in in the second round, and then, then people were saying, "Holy cow, got to get this guy in." Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that for any any folks out there listening that are thinking of applying to veterinary school, that's that's really. What you got to do, you got to find a way to stand out and and um, and you know chase opportunities that are unique, and you can write about them and tell your story, and, and that'll really uh, push your your application to the top of the stack. Yeah, well, I want to hear more of your story in just one sec, but I want to let the folks who might have tuned in after we began. This is Talking Animals on WMF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Dr. Eric Eisenman, founder of International Veterinary Outreach. IVO, which provides veterinary services and training to uh, rural areas and countries often sorely lacking both of those things. Uh, if you have a question for Dr. Eisenman or would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. Okay, so now you're in vet school at UC Davis. Kind of pick up the narrative, if you would, from there, just guide us to, I mean, obviously you would gotten all this travel, you continue working with animals, but like pretty much right off the bat, if I understand this correctly, you were thinking, hey, I've got an idea for this organization or the seedling of an idea. How did how did it go from there forward? Yeah, so uh, towards the end of my travels, I was in Nicaragua and I had been volunteering for an organization that had some resources and some volunteers, uh, but just really poor organization. And it and it really frustrated me. I remember having an epiphany. It was like a moment where I realized there's, there's such a great need in play, a place like Nicaragua. There's so many animals that are suffering. And, and you know, an organization, um, you know, the one that I was, I was volunteering with, just really wasn't delivering in the way that it could. And so I said to myself that there has to be a better way. There has to be a way to channel resources for animals to parts of the world where, where it's really needed. Um, and so fast forward, I'm, I'm in veterinary school and I, I, I more or less put that idea on the shelf because I knew I was going to be so, so busy in, in school. But, yeah. but then I, I realized when I was in school that, well, I have all these classmates that are, that I, I'm surrounded with that 
are also really motivated and interested and, and, and interested in, in the type of work that, that I do. And, and so I proposed the idea to some classmates to see if I could gain any momentum. And, um, and that's, that's essentially where IBO started. And so I had spoken with a mentor uh, about a location that, uh, they, that she would recommend where we could launch a new program. I uh, started gathering the, the team. And, and so really the initial IVO team was a group of veterinary students that just wanted to do good in the world, that wanted to build more of a unique skill set. And, um, and so we, we, uh, we planned our first trip to um, uh, a community called Hikileo, uh, which is in northwestern uh, Nicaragua. And um, this is a part of Nicaragua where there's, quite a bit of poverty and, and, um, you know, there's lots of stray animals. Um, the animals that you see often are very skinny. Uh, the, the, the people, you know, they don't have a whole lot of resources. And so there isn't a whole lot to offer the animals or invest into the animals. And so you see a lot of animal suffering. And, and so they don't really have a veterinarian in that part of the, the country either. And so we were more or less the first team of veterinarians to arrive and to start offering veterinary care and services. And, you know, the community really greatly appreciated it. And, and um, the, the beautiful thing was this was for veterinary students by veterinary students. And so the idea was to make this sustainable that the next class of veterinary students would be trained on how to conduct these programs. And then that class could train the next class, et cetera. And so the idea was that this could stay at UC Davis for veterinary students to gain exposure working in other parts of the world and um, uh, putting together these types of programs. And, um, and so that was, that was the beginning. That was our first model. So, Dr. Eisenman, as you just mentioned that kind of evolution, did it become sort of almost like part of the curriculum or it was still kind of this organization but it was kind of unofficially part of, of people that, that share the kind of interest that you and your initial round of colleagues did? You know, it, it, it never officially be, became a part of the curriculum, but, um, but it was an official club of veterinary students. Okay. So that, that allowed us access to more resources yeah. uh, through, through the veterinary school. Uh, we were unique in that we became a 501c3 nonprofit organization pretty early and in a way that would allow us even more access to resources where, you know, people could donate and, and write off those donations. So we were a unique club in that we became a 501c3. But it, uh, it, never, it never turned into an official curriculum of the veterinary school where students could receive credit. Um, but that was something that we were we were definitely hoping would happen at some point. And did it? Um, well, to the best of my knowledge, I I don't I don't think so. But okay, if, if you fast forward, that that club um, stayed at UC Davis, and uh, eventually, so essentially, it was a a club uh, with an international veterinary outreach. But as international veterinary outreach grew into a uh, a larger organization, we decided that this club for students should stay at UC Davis. And so they continued uh, this program in Nicaragua, even though we were moving on to start new programs. Oh, I see. So it's really almost like a subset continues, uh, even though it was the mothership originally, it still lives at UC Davis. Meanwhile, the 
the kind of larger 501c3 with more structure version of IVO has moved on to other things. Exactly. Gotcha. So along the way, like especially when you were in the more of the formative stages to back up a little bit, what concerns did you or others you spoke with and you said, hey, I've got this idea with your fellow students there and colleagues about launching an international veterinary operation, like just in terms of let's say, local ordinances or cultural influences or laws or the possibility of insufficient resources. I mean, were there concerns along the way of, like, when we got somewhere, how would we actually, would we be up against something or would we have to master some things first before we even got there? I mean, were there those kinds of questions along the way? Oh, yeah. There there was there's a big learning curve and there's lots of concerns, right? So, if, if you're developing a program where you're essentially delivering high-quality veterinary care to a part of the world that wouldn't normally have access to veterinary care, yeah, you have to be thoughtful about cultural differences. For sure. Uh, Impact. You have to be yeah. About, um, how you know, even just uh, ensuring that you know you're doing everything appropriately and legally, and yeah, you know, you have you have the. Um, you have the OKs from the government. You have, you know, you have your permits. You, you, you know, you sort out your logistics and and you you raise enough funds and you know. So there's all of these different variables that you're constantly juggling while you want to maintain this optimism that this program is going to be as impactful as possible. You're going to uh, reach as, as many animals as possible, and and so you know that's always the hope. And you know sometimes you might get surprised. You might it might turn out that you didn't even know, but maybe there was a there's a holiday or some sort of local celebration that no one told you about, and you're you're there to deliver, you know, uh, a veterinary care for a community, but then people are, you know, they have other priorities or something like that. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of different variables that go into the calculation and how you um, put this all together and make it as impactful as possible. And so you got to you got to maneuver those uncertainties and and really. Um, over time, you know, you, you figure out the, the, the best process and strategy on how to do that. And probably how to research a different area that might have, the, as your example was, a holiday that you might not have otherwise counted on if you didn't do careful research to be alerted to that and schedule around that uh, as an example. Exactly. So did you know, like, even within the first trip to Nicaragua that you were on to something, that, like, the, this idea is definitely going to work? We, of course, we have to refine it and travel further along the l- learning curve. But was it right away where you thought, okay, this thing is definitely going to succeed, it just needs a you know, a little more tinkering, a little more polish, whatever. But I'm on to something here for sure. Yeah, you know, the the first trip really um, taught us a lot. We 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 were learning uh, probably more than we were teaching at that point, and and so it. I think one of the 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 big questions was, well, this this community or these communities that we're serving in northwestern Nicaragua. Did they seem to appreciate uh, the service? You know, were we well received? Did they want us to come back? And and I think we we did feel um, overall positive about that. That everyone seemed very appreciative for for us uh, coming to their their communities and helping their animals. So that was that was kind of the one first big question. Yeah. And and then the other question too was, well, is this something that the veterinary students want to continue? We've started it. 
it's up to us to continue it. If we want this to stay um, at the veterinary school for veterinary students to, to continue receiving exposure to international program. Um, it was up to us. And I think all of my, my classmates, including myself, thought, well, that went well, but I bet we can do it better. And so and so it, it, it did continue. And, and it, at that point, it did feel like we were on to something that this was really going to be uh, something special. And just so I'm clear, Dr. Eisenman, so even in that first trip to Nicaragua, and, and I guess just really subsequently, even as the organization has evolved over the, the ensuing decade, is there always an element of the IVO, people that are on that trip, that team, teaching people, local people, different veterinary skills or methods? Is that just part and parcel of the whole experience? Yeah. So so as we have evolved as an organization, we have moved away from the, the reliance on American veterinary student volunteers. Mm. And so our new model is, is really about leveraging veterinary professionals um, uh, that are well-trained. Um, many of them come from the U.S. or Canada. Um, but, you know, veterinarians that are, that are well-trained or even veterinary technicians or farriers, people that uh, work with animals, we want to allow them to share their skills and their experience with other veterinarians around the world that don't have the same access to education, right? Mm-hmm. So. As you were saying earlier, you know, UC Davis is this renowned university and has all these great resources, and, and which is great. But most veterinary schools around the world are not like UC Davis and really lack a lot of resources. And what that translates into is, is not the highest quality of education. And sometimes they're even training young veterinarians um, almost malpractices. Um, and so... If we're able to collaborate with with uh, veterinary schools or young veterinarians in other parts of the world that maybe haven't received the best training or you know aren't aren't being offered the best training at their institute, we can thereby um, implement better practices, show them um, you know essentially just um, uh, better ways to to care for animals. And so our our programs now. Um, are really focused around this type of capacity building. We're trying to trying to, to build the capacity of local veterinarians, but then we also do implement humane education um, for the community members, people that are, um, you know, essentially the guardians of the that population of animals that we're serving. And you know, we you know, with every animal that comes through our clinic, we want to. Uh, try to offer some some degree of education for that that guardian of that that animal and how they can better take care of their pet so that that animal in turn can, can better serve them and so it's not always small animals like dogs and cats we've we've, we've conducted um, uh, horse welfare programs in the Philippines um, mixed animals so sometimes working with uh, livestock um, and um, you know even pigs so the, the, the hope is that if, if we can educate people to take better care of their animals, um, those animals will in turn better serve them and, and live longer lives and be less likely to, to spread disease um, to people, et cetera. So does that mean, sorry if I we didn't quite understand this, but so does that mean when you're talking about the guardians and stuff, does that mean that when IVO goes someplace now, there might just be kind of lay people as well as veterinarians or aspiring veterinarians or vet techs? So that 
when they're learning like how better to care for their animals, that's literally their the animals at their farm or or even in their home or whatever. But they're not necessarily uh, medical or even aspiring medical professionals. That is correct. So you could you could say that our approach is is multi pronged or multi tiered, where you know you could look at the the veterinarian in a community as more or less a, a leader in animal welfare, and we want to work with them, of course. And then below them, they might have assistants, uh, people that, uh, you know, are, are helping the veterinarian, and, you know, whether they're like an assistant or a, a veterinary technician. Um, in certain communities, you know, if we think about workhorses, for example, um, you know, there's people that sometimes will also care for, for horse hooves, et cetera, like a farrier. Yeah. So we want to make sure that we're offering the best knowledge to, to those, those leaders uh, of their community in terms of animal welfare and, and animal care, but then also just the your everyday Joe and Jane that um, you know maybe they rely on their horse for um, transport or they they you know they have um, a dog that that uh, they care for um, you know that sometimes is uh, kind of like a loose pet or or you know you know more of an outdoor animal. Um, we want to make sure that even those folks that own these animals or are the guardians of these animals, that they also have better information to take better care of their pets. And, you know, a lot of this also comes down to the kids. So, you know, pe- people can be set in their old ways and can be a bit stubborn and sometimes harder to to um, offer um, any sort of insight or instruction, whereas kids are also, are usually more like sponges and they, 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 they watch and observe a lot of the time we'll have clinics and kids will come and just hang out and watch us. And that's a great opportunity for us to set a good example, how to, how to handle an animal correctly, how to show compassion that their, you know, animals respond well to positive reinforcement. They don't respond well to negative reinforcement like hitting or, or anything else like that. Yeah. So, so we want to be able to offer different degrees of education for, for everyone so that really, you know, this is this is about an animal welfare movement. This is about advancing animal welfare in a community. And um, and you have to get, you got to get everyone on board with that. Yeah, no, it sounds like it's really widened out in terms of its mission from the early days of kind of thinking about it and starting in, in, med, in vet school at UC Davis. And some of it definitely could see, you could really kind of trace the roots back to your experiences at, at San Francisco SPCA, et cetera. It seems like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this is Talking Animals on WNF. Um, Duncan Strauss, my guest is Dr. Eric Eisenman, founder of International Veterinary Outreach. We're hearing about how that works. If you have any comments or questions for Dr. Eisenman, you can call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So now a decade or so in, so how does it work in 2022? For example, how is it decided where... To go next, um, is it like a form of almost like triage where you identify uh, identify areas of greater need or urgency or might multiple IVO teams deploy at the same time even but to different locations or how does that uh, work? Well, we have very set criteria on places that we feel fit with, uh, you know, are a good fit for our mission. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we really try to focus our programs in areas that we think the need is greatest. And you know that that that's that's a, a big range, right? There's, yeah. There's there's great need here in the U.S., 
But if you go beyond the U.S. and you see, you know, uh, communities where there's a lot less resources than you typically see in the U.S., that often is translated into poor animal welfare. And so, um, you know, we're the, the U.S. is probably our one exception. We, we've had a, a, a program here in the, the Bay Area, specifically in Oakland, California. And, you know, part of that is because we want to we want to give back to our, our local community and we mm-hmm. want to um, you know, we we want to be able to to have a, a local program here. Yeah. But most of our programs that we're delivering are are in parts of the world where the, the need is just very great. Sure. And for us to develop a new program, you know, there's lots of criteria, but probably one of the most important, if not the most important, is that we really need boots on the ground. We need someone at that location that that lives there and and that can that can really help us coordinate launching a program because if we don't have someone like that and we're going to say a, a far beyond country that you know we don't we don't know anyone yeah uh, chances are that that program's not going to do very well so we want to we want to make sure that we have uh, a local contact that that has the ability to help us coordinate and, and plan the program okay and so naturally for us to launch these new programs usually it comes from requests so there's People in, in different parts of the world that uh, find out about our organization and they'll contact us. And some of them are good fits and some of them are not good fits. And so we we have a, a very strong uh, kind of thorough vetting process mm. to figure out, you know, which programs are going to be a good fit. And then and then we, um, you know, it's all it all comes down to our budget as well. How many programs we can we can uh, launch in one year and and. Um, and so that that's more or less our process and how we how we launch new programs. Yeah. All right. We're running near the end of our time, uh, Dr. Eisenman. So I want to ask a couple questions. One thing that you just alluded to that probably hopefully is a relatively quick uh, answer. How is uh, IVO and all these efforts funded? Well, um, funding comes from uh, private donations. So mm-hmm. generous uh, uh, private donors, um, anyone that's listening right now that uh, would be interested in and supporting our programs, um, we are launching a new program in Tanzania in a couple weeks. Yeah, that was um, question number two in our remaining time for sure. So we'll talk about that in a sec. But great, uh, um, great. So, so, so private donations is is uh, a really important part of our revenue stream. But we also uh, apply for grants from mm-hmm. foundations, and we're working on um, uh, corporate sponsorship as well. So. Corporate sponsorship is, you know, we're often trying to find other, um, you know, organizations or companies that are aligned with our values that, um, you know, also want to um, be a part of, of this animal welfare movement. And um, so those are those are kind of the main three streams yeah. of revenue that we're focusing on. Great. So, yeah, let's talk uh, semi-briefly, I'm afraid, but still nonetheless, let's talk at least a little about this new program in Tanzania. Sure. So we were contacted uh, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, from a Tanzanian veterinarian that um, essentially is fed up with how dogs are treated in his community, his city called Dodoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dodoma is a capital, is the capital city in Tanzania, and um, it's a rapidly growing city, and so there's a lot of people moving to the capital for economic opportunity and. You know, with people um, moving there, population growing, there's there's definitely a, a population of dogs, uh, stray dogs that's growing there. And 
sadly, this is a part of the world where rabies is still rampant. Mm. Uh, the risk of dog bite rabies um, is high, and so they, there's about 1,500 people that die every year from wow. dog bite rabies in Tanzania. And um, so it's a big problem. And so stray dogs are not treated well. They're looked at as pests. They're looked at as um, carriers of disease. And, yeah. and, and in this whole large city of Dodoma, there's not one veterinary hospital. And so this veterinarian in Dodoma, he had reached out to us, and he's just he's tired of this, this problem. You know, dogs are, are, you know, either shot or poisoned, and um, it's an inhumane practice. Uh, to, um, you know, um, uh, control the population that way. And so over time, we've been working with, with him as well as other uh, local Tanzanian partners. And so we've actually started um, planning a program where we're going to be working with two different Tanzanian veterinary institutes, um, training on best practices and in uh, spay-neuter surgery, as well as um, um, helping uh, explain the, the reasoning behind vaccination, you know, the immunology behind that, the, you know, deparasitization. So it's, you could call this also a, like a One Health type program or yeah. very public health focus. We're, we're trying to do our best to, um, to ensure that dogs receive good preventative care, that they're, uh, you know, uh, free of, of d- disease and suffering, and that they're also less likely to transmit disease to people. And so over time, we're hoping that this program will um, allow uh, people to be more accepting of dogs and that there'll be better practices moving forward and, and um, just general better better welfare for the yeah. dog and, and uh, less risk of infectious disease like rabies for people. For sure. No, it sounds like it's really going to alter hopefully perceptions and then of course the behavior and, and attitudes from there will be uh, altered as well so this sounds really promising that's great well dr eisman we have reached into our time we're speaking with dr eric eisman from international veterinary outreach the website again to find out more or if you'd like to uh, contribute or help in some way or another is ivo.vet v-e-t and um that's the website to uh, to check them out and uh, do what you can to support their efforts. And uh, Dr. Eisman, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals and great good luck with all your great work. Thanks for having me. In a moment, I'll speak with Gregory Malik Jones of Holistic for Pets in Bradenton. We'll fill us in on the anesthesia-free teeth cleaning opportunity at Bradenton stores hosting this Saturday, October 8th, and again next month on November 12th. We'll also hear a bit about Holistic for Pets itself. That's coming up in mere moments right now that we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is Kyle Kinane with a piece I'm calling Cat Sneeds in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Like, this is where I'm at socially, if to explain where I'm at on the social spectrum. I recently said God bless you to a cat. (laughs) Like, I I was alone in a room with a cat for a while. Like, not even just a brief moment, like an incident. Like, this was a whole afternoon. Not my room, not my cat. But I was fine with this arrangement. Like, this is what I can handle. Me and somebody else's cat, both of us just staring at walls, looking for answers. And the cat sneezed. And then it was quiet. 
And that's what made it worse. Because if it would have just sneezed, it would be like, oh, God bless you. And then, well, you don't need that. You're a cat. We would have laughed. It would have been fine. But instead, there was a sneeze. And then it was just that moment of just me sitting like, how do I play this right now? Do I say something? I was raised right. I have loving porno shopping parents that instilled values in me. It's like, yeah, but it's a cat. F it, I'm going for it. So I turned to it. It's like, God bless you, cat. I didn't even know its name. I was just opening up for once. It's like, God bless you, cat. And the cat turned and looked at me, because that's what cats do. They look at the origin of sound. But they have very judgmental faces. <laughs> so everything in that cat's expression was just like, why would you say that? That was Kyle Kinane in today's Comedy Corner of the piece I've called Cat Sneeze, taking from an appearance of his on Comedy Central right now. It's time to speak with Gregory Malik Jones of Holistic for Pets in Bradenton about the anesthesia-free teeth cleaning taking place this Saturday, October 8th, and again next month on November 12th, and about Holistic for Pets itself. This is Gregory Malik Jones on Talking Animals on WNO. Good morning, Gregory. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for joining us on Talking Animals. Let's start with a brief overview of Holistic for Pets, uh, the Bradenton story in particular, of course. What is it and what yeah, do you carry there and that kind of thing? For sure. So, yeah, we have all the standard types of diets, the kibble diets, the freeze-dried diets, dehydrated. Our primary focus here is teaching people how to build a better bowl. So a lot of times we'll steer people towards our freezer section where we have raw diets, lightly cooked diets, and other inclusions to add to the bowl like goat's milk, bone broth, uh, a product called Green Juju, which is cold-pressed vegetables um, yeah. that really help enhance the life of our dogs because the more of the, the fresh food elements that we can include, the better off our health is and the better kind of longevity we're able to give our animals. Well, that sounds great. And you, uh, as I noted in the introduction, are a certified uh, uh, pet food nutrition specialist. What training does one undergo to achieve that uh, status? Yeah, so there, there's multiple certification programs here in the U.S. Uh, that are really brought to us by more of the holistic-minded veterinarians. Um, so I trained under two holistic doctors up in Chicago, as well as San Luis Obispo, California, to get those certifications. Um, and it's really awesome because we're able to then teach pet parents how more of that whole food nutritional diet can be utilized without straying away from keeping our animals safe and ensuring that everything is complete and balanced. Um, and there's so many companies popping up nowadays um, with the right intentions. However, most of those diets are not complete or balanced or formulated correctly in order to meet the needs of our companions. So with your training and it sounds extensive with uh, various experts in various parts of the country even um can you can you guide a customer towards a particular food based on a dog or a cat's a condition like let's say my lab has skin allergies yep. could you help pick out a new food assuming this is maybe a new condition or, or a different absolutely yeah so yeah. all all real major maladies that are affecting our dogs and cats we're able to tailor diets specifically for Great. like diabetes obesity ibd arthritis you name it, we mm. can definitely, cardiac disease, it all kind of falls under the same picture, and every disease process starts with inflammation. So once we can reduce that primary source of inflammation, 
typically we can rebound and have some of the veterinary drugs actually taken out of the picture. I've had dogs successfully transition to fresh food that no longer need insulin, that were diabetic type 2, and they're, they're healthy as can be now. So wow. a lot of experience kind of changing the lives of our dogs and then kind of building upon things that we, we know how to do here. So it's, it's a fun day we have here at the store. That's great. And I guess I should also mention that you're a, a vet tech as well. So you're bringing that kind of expertise to, to the, these undertakings as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So uh, anesthesia-free uh, dentals or teeth cleaning, I guess, it's happening this Saturday, October 8th. I, I know those um, appointments are sold out, but November, I think there's still some left for November 12th. But this is important, I think, because many animals need a good teeth cleaning, of course, but many are either too elderly or frail or otherwise have a condition where anesthesia would not be the best thing for them to... Absolutely. So yeah, how, how does this for, work? Yeah, so even for a young animal, sometimes anesthetics can be damaging. Kind of the long-term effects can be damaging as well. So yeah. we're able to offer this mainly for animals that don't have severe enough dental disease where extractions would be needed. Mm. Um, so really for plaque and tartar cases, even extreme plaque and tartar cases, we're able to change the mouth of those animals. We, we invite a company called East Pet Dental Care here once a month um, where these technicians are trained in not only handling techniques to help ease the anxiety of the animals that they're, they're helping, um, but they use the same dental tools as human dentists, the scalers, Oh, wow. um, and the same same methods of kind of polishing the teeth after. And and really, it's, it's, it's encouraging because we're not dealing with any type of sedative or those drugs that cause harm to the body. Um, so there's no real recovery time that's needed. Um, there's no pain involved. Sometimes if at the gingival line of the actual tooth um, is like painful and inflamed, sometimes there's going to be a tiny bit of pain involved. But again, the outcome is far better because those animals aren't going to be in that chronic state of pain right. uh, because of their teeth being diseased. So, yeah, we get in there, clean the teeth. They leave here looking absolutely beautiful. That's cool. So do those animals with the scaler and some other things that may or may not, like you say, cause discomfort or even just there may be some noise or whatever, are they given anything to sort of keep them calm and in place while the procedure is happening? Not, so not unless the veterinarian that they primarily see has given them some type of drug like a trazodone or other kind oh, of station type drugs. So uh, they, but typically they come in here with nothing on board and they leave yeah. here with nothing on board. So and it, goes, just, and it goes okay. They don't, uh, they don't have any sort of bad reaction along the way to either the noise or the procedure. Not so, at all. Yeah. Sometimes we'll, we'll check them out like before just to make sure they're a good candidate with being handled. Yeah. We don't want to induce any more stress. We want to be as gentle as we can right. and as safe as we can with, with also the technician putting them at risk of a biting dog or something like that. We usually will vet the animal prior to the procedure. Okay, cool. Well, I'm afraid we're at the end of our time, but this has been Gregory Malik-Jones of Holistic for Pets, the Bradenton store. The phone number there is 941-302-8802. You can call there to find out about remaining appointments in November. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. All right, we're at the end of Talking Animals on WNF.org and WNF in Tampa. And uh, just keep in mind, our fall fun drive starts tomorrow. Please support Talking Animals. Go to TalkingAnimals.net or go uh, to WNF.org and hit our Talking Animals tip jar. We'd appreciate any early support. It's Talking Animals on WNF Tampa.